Welcome to the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. My name is Jeanette Cochran. I'm a pastor, women's leadership coach, and self-proclaimed Jesus feminist. I'm on a mission to inspire and equip women everywhere to own our voice, speak up, create, and lead wherever God calls. Because when women rise, everyone wins. Hello, friends, and welcome to Episode 7 of The Empowered Christian Woman. We're already on Episode 7, and we are just getting started. Today, I have another fantastic interview for you with Ashley Easter. I met Ashley about seven or eight years ago. Ashley grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian community that by all definitions was a cult. Today, Ashley is a cult survivor turned intuition coach. She helps people escape self-doubt and harness the science and practice of intuition so they can take control of their destiny. She is also founder of Courage 365, a nonprofit organization for abuse survivors, especially those abused in faith contexts, and she's passionate about creating a safer, more just world. Ashley shares her story and how she escaped a cult by really being introduced to egalitarian theology and realizing that what she had been told the Bible says about a woman's place all of her life was actually false, that it was a lie. And as she was exposed to the truth of Scripture, she found the courage and the will to escape a very oppressive community. I think you'll enjoy and be inspired by Ashley's story just as much as I am. And so let's go. Hi, Ashley, and welcome I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. I'm so excited to be here. And so I feel like our paths just keep like crossing. And so really excited about today. I've been following along your work and some of your journey. And so thank you for your willingness to come on today and just share with my listeners. And your story is amazing and your work is amazing. So first, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your organization, Courage365.org. What is that organization? What do you do? Yes. So Courage365, it is an organization to help empower abuse survivors. Um, We help survivors of all different kinds, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, physical, across the board. A lot of our clients have come from faith backgrounds. And so while we aren't exclusively serving people who've experienced abuse within faith communities, a lot of our audience has that. And I think that's because of my story and where I came from. And so we're really passionate about creating safe spaces, really educating people, getting survivors connected with resources. And, you know, it's one thing to experience abuse and it's a terrible tragedy and then to escape from it. But what I found so many people after they escape from abuse, they feel really alone and isolated. And we kind of view our role as not only educating, but connecting people to community, to be able to heal alongside other people and have access to different free programs that we have and eBooks and resources and all these types of things. So that's um, 
that's what Courage 365 is all about and it really was born kind of out of my story and um, excited to have seen it expand so much over the years. And so why don't we just talk a little bit about your story because as I've gotten to know you and hear more and more of your story, it is evident to me why your organization is called Courage 365. Because when I listen and I see where you've been and the work that you've done personally and the work that you're doing for others, I cannot even fathom the amount of courage that you have mustered to be where you are. And you're sharing that with others and giving them courage. So tell us a little bit about your story. You grew up in a Christian context and you describe it as a cult. So give us a little bit of insight into what that was like. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for those kind words. And I really look at courage as kind of the, I don't know who said it first, but the definition of courage is being afraid and doing it anyway, something (laughs) in that, in that line. And so that really is something that I try to live by, but also try to give people support systems so they can live a lifestyle of courage as well. But it really started back in my childhood. Like you said, I came from a faith context and I grew up in the independent fundamentalist Baptist church. You may be familiar with some of the big scandals that have come out recently in that denomination. And the Baptist denomination is actually very broad. So you have IFB, which I grew up in, you've got Southern Baptist, but there's like 20 different kinds of Baptists. So (laughs) we were like a very niche group. Both of my grandfathers were pastors in this denomination, and it was extremely patriarchal. Lots and lots of rules, and I've heard people call that church in and of itself a cult. And there were just bizarre rules that, you know, don't go to movie theaters, you can't dance, just very strict rules about modesty and women's roles. Of course, women couldn't be in any type of leadership roles that was perceived to be leadership over men, that type of thing. But that wasn't the only thing that was going on. So in addition to that, I was also homeschooled. And homeschooling can be a great choice for some people. There's a lot of different types of homeschooling and homeschooling families. I know during the pandemic, there's been a lot of people who have had to be homeschooled. Um, There's a lot of reasons to homeschool. But the homeschooling movement really did start... Um, It has this history in the very beginning of it with a lot of nationalist Christian ideas, a lot of cult-like behaviors. And so you've got the larger homeschooling movement and these smaller movements inside. And we homeschooled for religious reasons, not for educational reasons. And it was really used as a tool to isolate. There are ways to get around the isolation and really socialize children properly as they're being homeschooled, but that wasn't my experience. So inside the homeschooling movement, one of the movements inside of them is called the patriarchy movement. So it's like that bold. They call it that in books and, you know, different conferences and things. And it sounds like exactly what you would expect. It is about men having power and control over women in the home, church, and in society. A woman's role is to get married young, say yes to sex, be very submissive in everything. And there was certainly a lot of extreme gender roles. And it wasn't so much that people fell into gender roles because that worked best for their family, but it was like, quote unquote, sanctioned by God that you must, you know, fit into these stereotypical gender roles. 
So you've got the homeschooling movement. Inside of that is the patriarchy movement. Sort of like those Russian nesting dolls, how there's all like little dolls inside. The next doll in that Russian nesting doll set is the quiverful movement. And the closest pop culture example I have for that would be like the Duggars, 19 Kids and Counting, or Welcome to Plathville, that's another more recent. I would say our upbringing was maybe a little bit closer to that perhaps, but it's this idea that you should have a lot of children. And again, the choice to have a lot of children, as long as you can take care of them and give them all the proper you know, emotional support, physical support, all those things that they need, nothing against that. But again, it was brought back to this ideology that this was something that you really needed to do for religious reasons. And I remember sitting through a lecture as a teen girl called the 200-year plan. And the 200-year plan is this. You have 10 children, those 10 children have 10 children, those 10 children have 10 children, and on and on and on. For 200 years, you and your friends are doing this, you're gonna have this astronomical amount of descendants. Those children are gonna be like arrows in your quiver, that's where the name quiverful comes from. You're gonna shoot those arrows out into the world, you're gonna dominate the culture through overpopulation and with this patriarchal message. <sighs> Wow. Being a young girl and being told that you should have 10 children. Oh my, like what that does to your body. And and for some of us, we think, yeah, it'd be great to have kids. And then we have one and we're like, oh my goodness, I'm not even sure if I'm going to have another one. And, and yet you're being told at a young age that this is the way you're going to do good in the world. This is what God wants. Yes. Yes. That's a lot already to, it really is. Yeah. And there's one last little doll in that Russian nesting doll set that's kind of at the center of where I was at. So it's the homeschooling movement, quiverful movement, or patriarchy movement, quiverful movement, and then the very middle one was the stay-at-home daughter movement. And it is basically this idea if adult married women are supposed to submit to their husband and all things, what do we do with adult unmarried women? We can't just have them running around not submitting to anybody. That would be a travesty. So let's make the stay-at-home daughter movement where you submit to your father until you're given away in marriage to a man that you then to submit to for the rest of your life. You focus on homemaking skills. Maybe you help take care of your siblings with homeschooling. A lot of stay-at-home daughters do not go to college. I never got a college education partly because of that and also partly because I'm dyslexic but a big part was like well if I'm just gonna go to college and then have 10 babies I don't want the debt you know (laughs) of college (laughs) like what what are you gonna do with it um and so there's just all these movements that somebody can be a part of like the homeschooling movement and not be attached to all these or to the patriarchy movement but not necessarily be quiverful but you can't be quiverful without being patriarchal and it's just a really toxic place to be. So that was kind of my background and how I escaped was I kind of bought into it as a young child. I pushed back, but there was a lot of severe consequences for that. And so as a teenager, I had a blog called Stay at Home Daughter where I wrote to about 3,500 women about adherence to the patriarchy and why I thought this was a good thing. If you're familiar with the four different trauma responses, there's fight, flight, freeze, and then fawn. Fawn is kind of making people happy, so that was definitely a fawning stage for me. There was also this idea about how relationships should be done, like romantic relationships. 
Um, on one end of the spectrum, you had traditional dating where the couple decides if and when they want to date, what their physical boundaries and standards are, when if they want to get married, and you might ask for a blessing from parents, but at the end of the day, you all are making the final decision. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have betrothal or arranged marriage, which does happen sometimes in the homeschooling community. You often see that paired with a child marriage, which is legal in the United States and most states. We were kind of in the middle. We called it courtship, and it was basically, I could say no to a relationship or a marriage, but I couldn't say yes without permission. It was far more than a blessing. It was like this oversight of the entire relationship, even as I'm an adult. And so I got into one of these courtships and it became abusive. It was a contrast even to the life that I was growing up in. So it gives you kind of an idea of like how controlling that relationship was keeping in mind all the other levels of control I was already experiencing. And so we were tracking down to get married and I called off the engagement. And it was very difficult, it had been very public. I'm a pastor's granddaughter, I have this blog where I've written about all this. Um, and then I was in the throes of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So the depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, panic attacks, flashbacks, nightmares. And it felt like I couldn't escape. I had escaped him, but now I had this panic and anxiety when I was awake. And when I would sleep, I would dream about him and wake up out of breath because I was in a panic attack. So it just felt like I could not get out. And um, one of the things that I did to try to just cope and survive was, you know, one, it wasn't so much I wanted to not be alive anymore, but I just felt like I couldn't escape, so I did become suicidal. But to try to block that out, I would just put in headphones and I would stay up really late and turn that music up really loud to try to drown out the sound of my own mind. And when I was doing that, when I was actively trying not to think, that's when my intuition came through. And I heard this voice that came up and said, it's gonna be okay, something big, something good's about to happen. It's gonna be okay something big something good's about to happen and that was the first time I'd heard my intuition in a long time because it had really been suppressed and I certainly had never heard it that clearly and loudly and the voice was right within the next couple of months I was introduced to somebody who talked to me about equality from a biblical standpoint egalitarianism and I resisted that for a while, but after doing research, I was like, oh wow, I've been lied to my whole life. So that brought me down this path of changing ideologically and believing in equality for women, which was like, oh, now the foundation of everything is pulled out from under me because I can't be a stay-at-home daughter anymore. I need to make my own decisions because I'm accountable for my own decisions. I need to start traditional dating so I, so I can be responsible for who I'm gonna decide to marry and family was not pleased about that. It's a lot of um, backlash there. But I actually physically escaped when I was 22 when I married my husband, Will, and he's such a ally for women and pro-equality. He rescued me, gives you kind of a, a new meaning to the getaway car at a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, I was able to start my healing journey and start looking at the abuses I'd experienced, talking to a therapist, 
beginning to realize more fully the connection between patriarchy and abuse and really on this path to seeing how my intuition had saved me and how powerful intuition is and why it is this tool that we just cannot overlook and studying the science and practice of intuition and so from there that's when I kind of started what has now become our nonprofit Courage 365 and a coaching business on helping women in particular begin to trust themselves again and um, yeah that's that's sort of a nutshell version of my story and um, that's kind of where I'm at now amazing the work that you've done and just at 22 obviously you didn't have the support of your family and I suspect they probably were not only not supportive but probably tried to change your mind your situation it's certainly not unique there are others and you're helping many people get out of such cults many of the things that you described pieces of them are in a lot of mainstream Christian circles. Absolutely. Oftentimes, it's mixed in with all the other stuff, and we don't even know the damage that it's doing, or we may not even know how it's affecting us, right? And I re- I think it was at the CBE International Conference several years ago, you did a, a workshop that specifically mm-hmm. talked about how patriarchy, and I would say even in complementarian theology, which is a form of patriarchy, fosters abuse. So can you say a little bit about that, why it's so important to really think twice about what we believe about men and women? Well, I think some of it started from getting trained in abuse victim advocacy. And one of the first things I learned is that abuse is always motivated by a lust for power and control. So physical abuse. Some people are like, oh, he just has anger issues. Well, he may have anger issues, but the reason he is hurting somebody and not finding another outlet to address his anger is because he's trying to have power and control over the victim. Spiritual abuse. It's not just that they have a misunderstanding of the the scriptural passages. It's that they're leveraging it to have power and control over other people. Sexual abuse, it's not just because they were tempted to lust, it's because they chose to try to dominate somebody else. Same with emotional abuse and you know, on and on. And so when I realized that abuse is always motivated by lust or power and control, I then began looking at structures of power and control and realizing that these structures in and of themselves are abusive. And I would say structures like racism, structures like patriarchy are absolutely structures of abuse. And when you talk about complementarianism, you rightly said that it is a form of patriarchy. I would say that there is kind of hard patriarchy and soft patriarchy, at least in language but it's all still patriarchy. So you could have the overtly violent patriarchy where it's like, woman, submit. Or you could have the quote unquote soft patriarchy where it's like, 
I don't even have to tell you to submit to me anymore because you're so brainwashed by these teachings that if you don't submit to me, you are now in defiance to God, which brings your salvation into question, which means you might be dying and going to hell. And I'm going to use these flowery words about joyfully submitting to subtly remind you of your place. Both of those are accomplishing the same thing, whether you're using violent force or whether you are coercing and using flowery language. So the system itself, in my belief, is abusive. Now, that being said, not everybody who believes in the system is enacting abuse. So I think the ideology is abusive. But there will be some people who call themselves complementarians, but when you actually look at their practical relationship, it's operating very egalitarian, and they just don't have the correct language to describe it. So I don't want to say that every single person who believes in patriarchal ideology is going to enact abuse, but the system lends to abuse. The system is abusive because it's based in power and control. And it's not just dangerous for women, and it's obviously dangerous for women, but for men too, because with patriarchy, there's still these hierarchies. It's a hierarchy between men and women, but then it's a hierarchy between men and other men. So there will be men and boys who are abused in patriarchal systems, and then their voices will be silenced um, in different ways than women's voices are silenced. And so it's really destructive Patriarchy isn't men, but it's a system that favors men. And a system that favors one type of person over another is about power and control, and that in itself is going to be abusive. And you're going to see a lot of justification for the more quote-unquote traditional forms of abuse that we think of when you're in a system where power and control is accepted and even praised. That's so helpful. And yeah, I love what you said about how often marriages use the language of complementarianism, but when you look at how they are living practically, they're living egalitarian. That was really the story for my husband and myself for many years. If you would have asked, we would have quoted the Bible verses and and we we were just saying what we'd always been taught. But the way that we operated was very much in our gifting and very much that we, each of us, was going to speak up and speak our mind until we could get on the same page. There wasn't going to be, you know, one person always making the decisions. And sometimes that meant my husband gave in to what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And sometimes through conversation, I gave in to what he wanted. But it was really my choice. It wasn't like I had to. And so for us, yeah, when I made uh, the switch to realize, oh, I'm an egalitarian, it was really through my own study, I didn't have to change my life, which was so freeing. And I don't have to try and fit into boxes that don't fit me. And my husband doesn't have to feel shamed if he's not taking the lead in the way that certain Christians would say, oh, the men need to behave in a certain way to be the leader. I think the other important thing that I love that you said is that we're not saying that if you believe in complementarian theology or you are in a community that's practicing it, that that makes you an abuser. But to look at the system and realize for those who that is their default, that is their issue. 
it's going to flourish because the system is set up for it. It's set up for power and control. And I really feel like you've uh, really influenced my work and my passion when I realized when that final piece, because that's when I realized I can't be silent. I'm not going to try and control you to believe what I believe, but I'm not going to be silent and I'm not going to apologize for it because people's lives are at stake. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, I think you're really right about people's lives being at stake and that's not, um, that's not hyperbole. Like truly this type of theology, people have died and continue to die because they don't believe they can leave abusive marriages, because these scripture passages are taken out of context. And people who don't die, some of them, their gifts are completely squelched and they're living in suffering. And it's not an extreme view to realize that patriarchy impacts people so deeply to where in many cases it is life or death and if there had been theology if there had been spiritual leaders and teachings in place to say no you deserve to be treated with equality and respect and if somebody's not treating you that way it's okay to leave and i'll help you get the resources that you need to do that um when that when that doesn't exist for some people i mean it's it can be deadly deadly yeah. I think of the the well-known video that probably many people have seen with John Piper. Oh, yes. Because oftentimes what I will hear people say, we uh, believe a husband needs to lead by being loving and respectful. And that's those are nice sounding words. If your spouse is not an abuser, so with John Piper's um, comment, when someone asked, like, what does a woman do was, well, she just, she stays there for the night and just yeah, she might endure being slapped for the night. Yeah, she'll exactly like, uh, no, instead of she calls the police, because actually, it's against the law, you should you should call the police, first of all. And his thinking was what he was saying is, yeah, you endure it for the night. And then you go to the church. And this happens. And it happens every day behind closed doors. And unfortunately, some of our churches are fueling this kind of abuse and it's it's sad. And even in the situations where it's not over abuse like that, like you mentioned the husbands that are the quote unquote loving leaders or whatever, that's even still not the type of relationship that I want because it's not actually freeing. I remember going through a marriage class. I think I went through four marriage classes um, before I got married and used none of the information. Like none of it actually was helpful or useful. <laughs> Just be a good person, communicate, love each other. You know, that's those are the basics. But um, it was something about how the husband should view you as like this cherished cherished vase on a pedestal. I don't want to be an inanimate object that's worshipped. I want to be seen as a human, flaws and all, who has a will and a right to make decisions for myself and who is involved in my own life. And so even if it's not he's beating her, but just he's treating her like this object that is so breakable that she needs so much protection that she can't even make her own mistakes. And like, to me, that is just 
soul crushing. And if somebody wants that, you know, I mean, to each their own. People have their kinks, but that's not for me. <laughs> it's not for me. Yeah, that's a really good point. It, it just the language in the picture does it assumes that we're all the same, and it does assume this idea that women are weaker, yeah. and instead of seeing us as strengths, which ironically, right, that's the first word that God uses in the Bible. The first word to describe the female being is strength, mm-hmm. and yet we oftentimes are given these pictures, consciously and sometimes subconsciously, that cause us to doubt our power and our resilience. So that leads us into this other idea of intuition. You talked a little bit about how you feel like you first heard your intuition way back Mm. when you were still living in that abusive situation, and it kind of started to lead you out. I know from my experience in many women, our intuition can be a superpower, but oftentimes we downplay it or sometimes we have been programmed to discount it, to silence it, to not trust it. So talk to us a little bit about what is intuition and why can we trust it? Why should we trust it? Yeah, so... I started experimenting with my intuition um, kind of after I experienced it when I was leaving the cult and then when I was in a safe place and I would I would have all these weird things happen. So I would be like sitting on the couch at home and my intuition would be like, you need to get up and go to the store. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to the store. Like, I don't need anything. I'm just, and it would be like, no, you need to go there. And so I'm like, fine, you know, I'm just going to see what happens. I get up, I go to the store, I walk down the aisle, I turn to the left, and there's a woman there from out of state that I needed to talk to and hadn't seen in years. And we had this conversation around survivorship. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to probably try that again because that was amazing. And um, I use my intuition when we move states. I use my intuition when I said yes to Will when he asked me to marry him. Um, I've used it in all these big instances, but then I start experimenting with it in small, low stakes things, you know, choosing your avocado at the grocery store or, you know, um, should I go this way or that way to, to get to my destination? And so I began seeing like some anecdotal, um, just like realizing how powerful it was and how much broader of a perspective my intuition had than my conscious mind and so then I started looking at the science and there's actually a lot of science behind it people tend to think of intuition as just like this woo-woo thing that you know only women have and you know it's just kind of flighty and all this but actually there's some science behind it and so if you'll give me a minute to kind of explain the science I think it'll give some clarity on what intuition is so the brain is very complex, um, but it can be broken down into the right side of the brain, the left side of the brain, and it has a lot of other pieces, but just for this conversation, it's it's important to know that there's differences between the right and left side of the brain. So the left side of the brain is very analytical. It's the conscious part of the brain where you know what's happening. It's the memories you can think of in the moment. It's the things that you see in front of you. It's the deliberate 
thoughts that you have and the things that you try to um, work with. It's sort of like if you are trying to solve a math problem, the analytical side of your brain has to think back to high school or college where you learned to solve that math problem, then has to remember each of the steps, you have to work the steps, you have to hope that you didn't miss any of the steps, and then you come to a solution and get an answer. It's the same with if you make like a pros and cons list about should I do this or that. And it can be useful, but there's so much room for error on that logical side of the brain. It's useful in some cases, but there's so much room for error because it has a very limited perspective. It can only get the information of things that you can remember and the things that are in front of you. The right side of the brain is more of the creative side of the brain. It's the place where your subconscious is and your intuition is housed inside of your subconscious mind. And what happens, science calls it rapid cognition. So when it tries to solve a problem for you or give you information, it goes to a very sim similar process to the left side of the brain with all the analytics that it went through and all the memories and stuff, but it has access to a lot more information. So it can remember the memories that you can't even conjure. Um, if you studied epigenetics at all, where our DNA can actually change and we can pass on different bits of information through our DNA from our ancestors. I can pick up on energy because everything in the world is energy. There's just so many other data points it can pull from. And so it goes through an analytical process, but it's using this vast amount of information. And it's called rapid cognition because it does it below the surface. You're not really sure how it came to the conclusion, but it does it in about one to three seconds. So it's much faster and much more accurate. I would say it's always accurate from my experience in the study that I've done. Um, and one more kind of analogy is if you're looking at your desktop computer, your conscious mind, the left side of your brain is sort of like the desktop files that you have there. And you might have a lot of files there. So there's a lot of logical pieces you can pull from. But with your intuition, it's like the hard drive of your computer, all those files below the surface and just like hitting the search bar, looking for a file and it pulls it up, you know, almost instantly. So the way your intuition then gets your attention because it has all of those analytical processes going on beyond below the surface, it has to let your logical side of your brain know about it. And it does it typically in one of four ways through a sense of hearing. And this isn't like a, nobody could hear it outside of you. But like in my story, I heard these words in my head. It came from my subconscious. I was not trying to think about it, but it popped up and I just had this, like, it's gonna be okay. And I was like, okay, better trust this. Um, so it could be words or phrases. It can show up in quote unquote seeing. So it's not like an apparition comes in front of you, but you might have a color or you might see an image. If you do meditation, you might see like a visual there might be a dream that you have. Then there's the feeling. This is the most famous one. You know, you hear about your gut feelings. Well, it can show up in your gut, but also you might get chills down your arm. You might get, you know, older people are sometimes like, oh, I can feel it's going to rain. I feel it on my elbow. You know, it's just, it shows up in your physical body. And then the last one is just a sense of knowing where you don't know how you know this information, but you know, I can't trust this person or I'm not sure why but I need to take this leap in business here, or this is something I need to explore and discover. 
And so when you understand how it works, then it's really useful to start applying it. And um, all you have to do is really ask. You can use that rapid cognition tool, I call it the three second rule, where you can ask your intuition a question and usually what comes up in the first one to three seconds is your intuition. Past that, it's your logical brain being like, ah, you know, maybe this, maybe that. And you can know it's your intuition based on these two different feelings. So the logical, the ego side of the brain is gonna usually come from a place of fear. There's gonna be trauma triggers there. And it's not to say those things aren't useful. If you see a bear and you feel fear, okay, that's, you know, that makes sense. But if you're walking in the woods and you hear a crack and you think it's a bear, but it's not really a bear, your fear, the logical side of your brain, it just doesn't have the full amount of information. So it's not always right when it's giving you that fear motive. It's also gonna feel very hectic and all over the place and like hyper energy. Um, it's gonna you know, go back and forth. It's gonna be highly emotional, either positive or negative. Intuition, however, is going to be calm, cool, clear, concise, emotionless. You might have emotions about what your intuition said, but its actual voice is not going to be filled with emotion. And most of all, it's not going to get use fear. It's going to be very calm, cool, and clear. It always comes from a place of love and expansion, whereas the logical, ego-driven mind is going to come from a place of staying safe, being in your comfort zone, fear fascinating. There's a book, I think it's called Blink, that talks about mm-hmm. uh, how we should make decisions very rapidly and how to tap into that intuition side of you. I've been doing a little bit of research in neuroscience and change, and a lot of what you've shared does line up with what I'm learning about the brain. Some of the things you describe, people would say, oh, that happens, but that's the Holy Spirit. That's God mm-hmm. speaking to me. And so I would say for me, I do think sometimes we make everything about God. Everything that doesn't make sense to us, it's like, it's God did it. And just like you said, we do have a subconscious brain that files things away. We have to recognize God has created us as amazing beings with amazing brains. And so sometimes I do tap into that and I can kind of recognize like, oh, I do think this came from some some other knowing within me. And then sometimes I'm like, I think this is a knowing that came through my mm-hmm. subconscious, but it was it was wisdom from outside of me that, you know, that the divine has given into me. I'm okay with people calling it intuition, calling it the spirit, calling it God. And the reality is for s- spiritual formations and the spiritual disciplines that have been a part of our Christian tradition that unfortunately aren't really included in a lot of fundamentalist Mm -hmm. Christianity. And even in a lot of, a lot of evangelicalism is so intellectual and action-based versus being and being silent. And so just even the idea of the centering prayer, and that's Mm -hmm. something that I've practiced often yeah. to try and silence my logical brain who that wants to keep me in fear and right. worried about all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And when I sit in centering prayer and try and, you know, just center on one word and try and realize that I am in the presence of the divine. Yeah. It's, it's from that place that I do come out calm. Mm-hmm. I do come out clear. 
And so everything that you're saying, and so I guess I throw that out to say, I do think, I think it's, it's backed up by science. I think it's, it's backed up by our wisdom in Mm. Christian spirituality. When you look at some really healthy aspects of the spiritual disciplines that are really given to us to transform us, to really change us, not from the outside and just Mm. behavior management, but changes from the inside. I love that you're tapping into that. And I suspect as an abuse survivor, how freeing that is to realize you can actually trust yourself and that wisdom can be accessed anytime you need it. Absolutely. And when I, my intuition coaching is separate from my nonprofit for survivors, but I find that a lot of my clients Um, are survivors because most of my clients are women and one in three women (laughs) are survivors of abuse at the very least. But yeah, going back to what you said, you know, I don't care what people call it, God, universe, angels, intuition. I don't really care what term they use. Just listen to it. And if you call it something that is resonant with your faith language, just be sure not to exclude people outside of your faith because we have research showing that people of other faiths or no faith at all also experience intuition. So if you want to call it whatever, as long as you listen to it, I don't care. But I have run into a few people who are like, no, only me as a Christian. I'm the only one who hears this information. I'm like, well, actually my atheist friends, you know, they also, you know, have a sense of intuition. I don't think that it is an opposition to people of faith to listen to their intuition, to understand the science. I don't feel like it's an opposition at all. I I feel like sometimes there are truths of the universe and we use language that resonates most with our experience and that's okay again as long as you listen to your intuition i don't care what you call it (laughs) just be safe out there guys (laughs) we're all created in the image of god and we all have the spark of divine Mm. within us yeah so I absolutely agree that anyone can hear that voice and you don't have to be a Christian to have access even to what some would consider the voice of God, the the voice Mm -hmm. of the divine. How can other women find the work that you're doing? Where can our listeners find you? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. So most of my intuition work is on Instagram and my handle is at I am Ashley Easter. And I pretty much don't do any advocacy work there, and it's just intuition-based stuff. But for my advocacy work for abuse survivors, I guess Twitter is probably the best place to find me. My handle is at Ashley M, the letter M, Easter. Then my nonprofit, Courage365.org, you can go to our website there. We actually have a really amazing event coming up. So... It started out as an in-person conference in 2016 called the Courage Conference. And we had 120 people in person, 80 people live streaming online our first year. And we just every year had another event, another event. And then COVID happened. So (laughs) since 2020, we have done something a little different. It's called the 30 Days of Courage. And it is 
30 days, October 1st through the 30th, inside of our Facebook group. It's a completely free event, but we have amazing speakers that come in and talk about healing and recovering from abuse. We've had like Leah Remini. She's an actress who escaped Scientology. We've had Jonathan Sheck. We've had some of the Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein survivors like Michelle Hurd and Sarah Ann Mass. This year for the 30 Days of Courage, we have a Hollywood intimacy coordinator, so somebody that really deals with consent, and she's going to be talking about what she learned from there and how we can apply consent to our daily relationships. Then we have a Hillsong Church survivor, Noemi. She was actually on the Discovery Plus documentary about Hillsong that just came out, and we've got several other people. I'm going to be talking about identifying cults, hidden in plain sight, and we have self-care challenges and we have prizes that you can win and we've got support groups and loads of free resources and again like it's free the best price it's free <laughs> it all happens inside of our facebook group and the easiest way to find out more get the link to our facebook group is courage365.org that's courage365.org slash the word 30. So 365 is the numbers and then 30 is spelled out and it has the speaker lineup and all the details and um, it's for survivors but also people who love survivors and want to learn and deepen their advocacy work. It's something that I am just so proud of, not because I'm on the speaker lineup and I am, but because of all the people that are showing up to make this just such an impactful event like the stories we get from people after they have listened and participated it's just it's been life-changing for a lot of people and so I just want to invite people to come that sounds fantastic thank you so much for the work that you're doing and the healing that you have done and what I love so much about your story and your life is you are turning around and you're bringing people along with you and you're giving courage to others. And that's what it's about, that we need to do this together as women and we need to be empowered and empowered women empower women. I hope that my listeners will definitely check out your website, courage365.org or find you on Twitter, or Instagram. So thanks for being with me today, Ashley. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to chat with you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it with other women in your network. For more information about me and the work that I do, check out JeanetteCochran.com. And I'd love to hear from you personally. Come join the conversation on social. You can find me on Facebook at Coach or Instagram at Jeanette.Cochran.